Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Grace Redeemer Community Church. Welcome to everybody who is online. I'm not going to mix it up this time. Uh, if you are a visitor, we welcome you today. We have cards. They are in the seat back in front of you, and we'd love to have a record of your attendance. Um, you can fill that out, and we have wooden boxes in the back that you can put that when uh, we are finished with service. On the other side of that card is a place for prayer request. So if you would like to uh, put a prayer request in for the whole body to pray for you, you can put that on there. If you'd also like it to be just for the elders or kept private, there is a checkbox for that as well. And again, you can put it in the back uh, wooden box at the end of the service. The scripture for today is going to be from Mark 13, 1 and 2. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what a magnificent buildings. Do you see these great buildings, Jesus replied? Not one of these stones here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you so much for giving us this building, a place, and the ability to come and worship you and learn about you. I pray for those who are out sick, who can't be with us, who are still healing from the sicknesses or surgeries over the holidays. I pray that you be with them and, and speed their healing. Lord, I pray that you open our hearts and our ears as Bob preaches today so that we can learn and take that into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.
Good morning to you all. Great to be here with you, starting the new year of worship, and uh, I see some great faces back. Mama Cherry is back. That's awesome to see. Susan Krause is back. That's great to see. Uh, so God is good, and he takes care of his own, and uh, we're just thankful to be here uh, as a new year begins and we get to continue to preach the word. So we're going to be back in Mark today uh, in a message that we're calling the beginning of the tribulation. This is Mark chapter 13, uh, one, uh, sorry, chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. Uh, before we get into it, let's just go to the Lord and ask for his help in understanding the word today. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the day. We thank you for the new year, 2024. Uh, Lord, we just ask your blessings on what we're going to be doing here in the new year. And uh, Lord, we pray that you'll bless Grace Redeemer Community Church uh, and all its members another year. Uh, Lord, as we seek uh, to worship you and to, and to do your will uh, in this place where you have placed us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before I begin the message, I just want to uh, let you know that, that uh, we're still collecting cards for that Sunday school uh, group uh, for the joining, if you'd like to be a part of that. Uh, unfortunately, I don't see any more of those cards outside, uh, so we're going to get new cards for you to hand in to indicate which group you'd like to be a part of, uh, but if there is no, uh, if we don't have a card, you can certainly email me or John uh, and uh, just let us know which group you'd like to be a part of, and we'll do our best to accommodate that. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is that uh, Ruth Green uh, is coming out of rehab and back to her home next Saturday, uh, which is great news. Uh, what she needs, though, is, is her bedroom is on the second floor, and she's not going to be able to manage stairs for a while. Uh, so I'm looking to recruit a couple of guys to help move her bedroom, which is upstairs, uh, downstairs into the living room, and then move some other furniture around so that this will be functional. Uh, so I have a couple already, but uh, if you can help, uh, we're going to try and do this Wednesday at 3 p.m. Uh, shouldn't take very long. I don't think there's very much to do, uh, but we'd like to make a space for her so that when she gets out on, uh, on Saturday, uh, she's got a bedroom on the first floor to come home to. So that's what we're hoping to do. Uh, so please let me know uh, either after church or uh, I'll email the group uh, if we don't have enough and, and uh, remind you of that, that we're trying to do this Wednesday at 3 p.m. Okay. Uh, so, back into Mark, uh, the beginning of the tribulation, Mark chapter 13. Uh, now, you probably know, uh, if you're older than I am, that construction of the Berlin Wall began in 1961. Uh, now that's four years before I was born, so I don't remember that. Uh, when I was young, uh, my perception was that the Berlin Wall had always been there, because in my whole lifetime, it had always been there. Uh, but in fact, it actually wasn't completed until 1975. And even then, the wall only stood for 14 years, just 14 years before in 1989, uh, that wall came down. Now, Jesus' apostles, you know, they weren't alive themselves when construction of Herod's temple, uh, the second temple period, began. Uh, to them, uh, it, has, it had always been there, right? Uh, the, the second temple, I say the second temple, this is a re Herod's remodeling of the second temple, uh, which began in 20 B.C., uh, so by the time they were old enough to know what was going on, that temple had been there, and as far as they perceived it, they had, it had always been there. But, you know, in, in, in actual fact, that temple wasn't completed until 63 A.D. 63 A.D. That means it only stood in its completed state for only seven years until the Romans tore that thing down in A.D. 70. And Jesus predicted these things in Mark chapter 13. <laughs> And so that's what we're going to be talking about, Mark chapter 13, for the next few weeks. Now, we have been out of the Gospel of Mark for almost two months now, so I think it's a good idea for us to get our bearings again. 
uh, at the end of Mark chapter 12, where we left off. Remember, uh, this is the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, chapters 11 through 16 are the last week of Jesus' life, uh, what we call Jesus' Passion Week. Uh, passion is from the Latin word passio, which means to suffer, and so that's why uh, we call it that. So Jesus had been teaching publicly in the temple courts, and one thing that he had been teaching about repeatedly was his authority. Remember, he rode into Jerusalem uh, on a donkey. Uh, that fulfilled the passage of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, uh, that the, that's how the Messiah would come. Uh, he accused the uh, religious leaders of making his father's house into a den of robbers, and then he cleared the temple courts. That's a display of authority. The leaders demanded by what authority he did this, and he refused to answer their questions unless they first answered his question. John's baptism, is it from God or is it from men? And when they refused to answer his question, well, he refused to answer their question. And then he applied Psalm 118 to himself. Remember uh, the, the, the cornerstone, the, the builders rejected. He will become the chief cornerstone. Jesus applied Psalm 118 to himself. These are claims of authority uh, uh, that he has as their Messiah and also over the temple and the temple courts. So a cl claims of authority throughout Jesus' last week and also a teaching about what true faith looks like. What true faith looks like. Remember, he taught the parable of the withered fig tree, uh, telling the disciples what the power of prayer was for those who believed in God, uh, that, that what they could do if they prayed uh, would be equal to that withered fig tree. Uh, on the question of taxes and the authority of Caesar, uh, Jesus told the Pharisees and Herodians, yes, pay your taxes to Caesar because those coins in your pockets, they have Caesar's image stamped on them. But give everything else, your life, your heart, your soul, your mind, all of that, to God because you have God's image stamped on you. And so a true disciple lives his life for God. He talked about the two greatest commandments. Remember, love God and love others. If you do these things, you have fulfilled all the commandments. So this is what a true disciple does. And then the last episode in Mark chapter 12 uh, is the uh, widow who gives her last two coins, puts them into the temple treasury, uh, which teaches us that as disciples of Christ, true faith uh, looks like depending wholly on God and his provision. Uh, so we see uh, claims of authority and what true faith looks like in uh, these chapters leading up to uh, this last uh, section of Mark, uh, beginning in Mark church, uh, chapter 13, uh, which is called the Olivet Discourse. We'll get that back to that in a little bit. Uh, in Mark chapter 13, uh, Jesus taught uh, his disciples privately uh, about what was going to happen in the future. So during the last week of Jesus' life, when he was teaching publicly, he would come into the temple courts, teach during the day, and then he would go back out to Bethany, uh, and he would spend the night uh, at Bethany uh, with Lazarus and Mary and Martha uh, out there. Now, one of these days, uh, his disciples uh, were, were marveling at the temple, this incredible structure of this beautiful building uh, that to them, in their minds, had always existed and would always exist. And so they say to Jesus in verses 1 and 2, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And then Jesus says, do you see all these buildings? Do you see all these massive stones? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Wow, that must have been a shock to his disciples, right? His disciples, as I said, they perceived that that temple would stand forever. Uh, to Jews, that temple was the center of worship, uh, and God dwelled there. 
Now they knew, of course, historically that the temple had already been destroyed once in the days of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon in 586 BC. But the way they perceived this is that, is that Jesus was teaching uh, that, that end times must be immediately around the corner. If the temple is going to be defeated or destroyed a second time, uh, that surely meant the end of the age. And that meant Jesus was going to establish his kingdom on earth now. And that meant Jesus would defeat his enemies and that Jesus would uh, rule over an earthly kingdom, a kingdom of peace and prosperity as in the days of David and as in the days of Solomon. Well, that got their attention for sure. So they want to know when these things will take place, verses 3 and 4. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the signs that they are about to be fulfilled? So they're in the temple area. They're looking at these massive stones. And then they take this walk uh, up to the Mount of Olives. So from the Mount of Olives, or from the temple, you would walk out this way across the Kidron Valley and up to the top of the Mount of Olives. It's probably about a mile, a mile and a half walk, something like that. So you can imagine the disciples pondering these things that Jesus said about the temple being torn down. And four of the disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, ask Jesus privately when these things will happen. And so Jesus uses this opportunity to begin teaching about end times. And so from the rest of Mark 13 here on out after verse 4, we have <clears throat> what is commonly called the Olivet Discourse. And it's called that because it was spoken on the Mount of Olives. So Olivet Discourse from the Mount of Olives. Now, it's not as detailed in Mark as it is in perhaps Luke or Matthew, but it follows the same pattern, uh, generally. Uh, Jesus wants to answer these questions that the disciples asked, uh, first about the signs and then about the time. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks in this Mark chapter 13, uh, looking at Jesus' prediction of things to come in the Olivet, in the Olivet Discourse. But at the outset, let me just say that I do not want us to get lost in the weeds of all this prophecy that we're going to be reading about. And I don't want these things to be divisive if you hold a different opinion than I do about these things. Because that's not the point of the Olivet Discourse. It's not that we would know with exact certainty exactly how and when all these things would be fulfilled. It's not to divide over it. The purpose of the Olivet Discourse is for Jesus to instruct his disciples and us about how we ought to live in trying times for believers, which Jesus' disciples would surely understand uh, after Jesus' death, and which we surely understand since we live in trying times for disciples of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, be ready. He wants us to be ready. That's what the Olivet Discourse is about. He said at the end of Mark chapter 13, more than once, you don't know the time when the Master is coming. Be ready. Be alert. That is what this is about. That's the main point of the Olivet Discourse. He wants us to be ready. Now, that said, the Olivet Discourse is one of the most important uh, prophetic passages we have uh, in all of Scripture. And since all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, uh, and for righteousness, training in righteousness, it's our duty as Christians to try and understand what this means. And as I've said before, I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church and a tribulation before Jesus' second coming. And I believe Mark 13 is about the seven-year tribulation period that is going to happen right after the rapture. 
And so Mark 13 breaks down into three neat little sections in my mind, uh, the beginning of the tribulation, the middle of the tribulation, and the end of the tribulation. So that's going to be our pattern for the next three weeks. Uh, and so today we're going to look at the beginning of the tribulation, verses 1 to 13. But before we do, we're going to need a little more context. We're going to need some more context because we really can't understand the Olivet Discourse unless we correlate it with the rest of Scripture, particularly Daniel chapter 9. Uh, you may remember from our study in Daniel chapter 9 uh, that, that those verses, chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, are really the key to understanding uh, end times prophecy. And these verses give us a framework for how to understand the Olivet Discourse and the book of Revelation. So we're just going to fly over Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27 now, uh, and then uh, think about how that applies to what we're talking about. So I want us to uh, really put our thinking caps on for the next five or six minutes, because this is hard stuff that we're going to be talking about here. So Daniel chapter 9, uh, 70 sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue till the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. At the end, or at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end is decreed, is poured out on him. All right, so a lot of stuff in there that's difficult to uh, understand. When we studied Daniel a couple years ago, we said uh, that the sevens are weeks of seven years. Daniel predicted 79 sets of seven years, or 483 years, that would pass between the time of this decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem uh, and the time of the anointed one being cut off. So 69 years of seven weeks, 483 years. We said that that 483 year period began with the decree of Artaxerxes in Nehemiah 2. Uh, he told Nehemiah, go back, restore the city, rebuild the walls. <clears throat> that was in March of, of uh, 444 BC. 483 years later, Jesus, the anointed one, uh, came into Jerusalem at his triumphal entry, and he was cut off. He was crucified, and so he was killed by those he came to save. So the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy have already been fulfilled. But what about the 70th week that Daniel predicted? Well, Daniel did not envision a church age that would separate the 69th and the 70th weeks. We have been living in this church age now for 2,000 years. And so Romans 9.11 is a good scripture passage, three chapters to look at, to talk about how uh, th there is an intervening church age, but that God still has a plan for Israel. So uh, Romans 11.25 and 26, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. 
That's the church age that Paul is talking about in 1125. And now 1126, and so all Israel will be saved. That will happen in Daniel's 70th week. So we are in this church age now. Daniel's 70th week is this seven-year tribulation period that follows the church age that happens right after the rapture of the church. And so uh, that is why I strongly believe in a seven-year tribulation and that God has a plan for Israel because God's promises to Israel are eternal and they can be trusted. So we don't know exactly when Daniel's 70th week will begin. We don't know when the tribulation will start. But we do know the event that triggers it, and that is the rapture of the church, when Jesus comes for his church. Jesus will meet believers in the air. He comes for his church. Uh, scripture references that support that are 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, John chapter 14, Revelation 3.10, uh, among others. So Jesus comes for his church. That is the rapture of the church. Uh, he comes for all believers. After the tribulation, Jesus comes with his church uh, to smite all his enemies and to, re re and to reign forever. So this tribulation is the seven-year period between the rapture of the church and uh, the, the uh, second coming of Christ. And these seven years are intended to be Jesus' last offer of salvation for those who have not yet believed. Uh, and so, as we'll note as we go through this Olivet Discourse, uh, Jesus is talking to Jewish men. Uh, answering Jewish questions, using Jewish references, because this Olivet Discourse pertains to Jewish people, for the most part, uh, unbelievers, uh, the unbelieving world, but especially to Israel. And so the events described in the Olivet Discourse, uh, they parallel the events that we see in Revelation chapters 6 through 19. And there's no mention of the church in Revelation 6 to 19, and that is probably because the church has been raptured, and so uh, it's not there to uh, undergo the judgments that, that God has uh, set forth for the, the people in the tribulation. Now, there's no triggering event that has to happen before the rapture of the church. That could happen any day. That could happen as we sit here right now. The church could be raptured. And if it does, the tribulation will begin immediately thereafter, the seven-year period uh, that uh, we're talking about in the Olivet Discourse. That could happen today. And that's why Jesus taught his disciples, be ready, be ready. That is the point of all of this. Okay, I think that's enough context. I hope you have your minds wrapped around this. We're talking about the Olivet Discourse, which is happening during that seven-year tribulation period. So let's move on to three principles here that Jesus taught in verses 5 through 13 that apply in any age to all believers in Jesus Christ who long for his second coming. And those principles are, don't be deceived, be on your guard, stand firm. All right? Don't be deceived, be on your guard, stand firm. Let's look at the first one from verses 5 through 8. Jesus said to them, watch out so that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various, I'm sorry, there will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. So Jesus warns of wars and rumors of war and earthquakes and famines and nations fighting against nations. Those things have been happening since Jesus spoke the words. They're still happening today. 
Jesus cautioned his apostles, don't think this is the sign of the end time. These are not the things that are going to trigger his coming. These are just like the beginning of birth pains. So, uh, you know, a woman when she's going into labor, the, the birth pains are, are more mild and the contractions are further apart. The further along she gets in the birth process, they become much more severe and much close together. That's the intensity with which these events will increase in the tribulation period. Jesus warned them, don't believe all these false messiahs who are going to come and they're going to point to these events and they're going to say, look, this is the end of the times and I can be your savior, I can be your leader. Jesus said, no, these are only the beginning of birth pangs. In the, in the, at the end of the tribulation, there's going to be an increase uh, in these wars and, and in earthquakes, but the tribulation is going to be unlike anything the world has ever seen before. So Jesus says, verse 5 and 6, don't be deceived by these false messiahs. Many will come in Jesus' name, claiming to be Jesus, to be their Messiah, and many will be deceived. And what have we seen throughout our lifetimes and throughout the 2,000 years of church history? Many have come and have deceived many, uh, claiming to be saviors and deliverers and prophets and even gods. We've seen this even in the 20th century. We could name leaders like Hitler, right, who, who claimed to uh, say he was going to rebuild Germany, make it the most prominent nation on earth, and even start a new race, and he would be their leader. We could point to religious leaders like Jim Jones, who uh, somehow convinced almost a thousand people that they ought to kill themselves because he was some kind of messiah. We could point to founders and leaders of cults like Joseph Smith and Mormonism, or Charles Taze Russell and the Jehovah's Witnesses, or uh, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians, or even Mo uh, Muhammad uh, and Islam. Jesus said, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. And that's good advice for us today. This applies to every believer in the church age because uh, we are tempted to follow false teachers, false prophets, prosperity gospel preachers, and healers. They've all developed a huge following in our day. Fakes would appear in Jesus' day, they've appeared throughout church history, they will appear today, and they will continue to appear until Jesus comes. But it will be even worse for those who don't enter the tribulation, who are not raptured. Now, all believers are going to be raptured, right? M millions of people are going to disappear. That's going to throw the world into absolute chaos. Where have all the people gone? And there's going to be chaos among the people, and, and people are going to always try to seize power in a vacuum. And that is what's going to happen. And so a world leader is going to arise when the tribulation begins, and he's going to have a charismatic personality, he'll be very attractive, and he's going to have enough power to cause world leaders to enter into some kind of covenant of peace. And of course, the people at the time, uh, living at the time, they won't know that this man is actually the Antichrist. He'll look like a savior, but he's a great liar, and he's a great deceiver, uh, tricking people uh, while he's planning to set up a kingdom for himself. Now, many commentators equate this coming of the Antichrist with the first horse uh, in Revelation uh, chapter uh, 6, uh, the first seal. Now, this is what it says. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of seven seals, and then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So this rider on a white horse brings peace after conquering nations. And many commentators believe that this is the Antichrist. Israel will enter into a covenant with him in the tribulation period. 
and Israel will let its guard down because it believes that they have now entered into a covenant that will guarantee their peace and safety. And so they will honor and respect the Antichrist because they will have failed to heed Jesus' warning to watch out, to be on guard, to, de- to not be deceived. And so in the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist will break his covenant with Israel. And we'll talk about that next week. Uh, but Jesus' first warning is, don't be deceived. His second warning is, be on guard. And so here we see the persecution that those in the tribulation will endure from the government that exists at the time, verses 9 through 11. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Now this word uh, for be on your guard is the Greek word blepete. It means watch out. It means beware, be careful. And so Jesus spoke these words to his apostles, and they would all experience a certain amount of persecution, even unto death, uh, most of them in their own lifetimes. Jesus told them, don't worry about what you're going to say when the time comes. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. So Jesus is speaking about the tribulation, but his words have to have relevance to the people who are listening to them at the time as well, and they do to the apostles and for us, countless, for the countless martyrs, 2,000 years of church history, and for us today. So we will suffer persecution for Jesus' name, but these are not the signs of the coming of, sec- of Jesus' second coming either. In the tribulation, it's going to be a whole lot worse. Uh, All believers will be taken up to heaven. Only unbelievers will enter into the tribulation. And during the tribulation, some unbelievers are going to become believers. And what is going to happen is that there is going to be great conflict between the unbelievers and the believers, just as there was in Jesus' day, just as there is today. Believers will be persecuted by unbelievers. They'll be handed over to the Antichrist government. The Greek word for handed over is the word paradidomai. It means to betray, to turn over, to hand over. It's the very word used of Judas's betrayal of Jesus. He paradidomized him, he handed him over, he betrayed him. And that will happen to believers during the tribulation period, and they will suffer greatly and in enormous numbers because of Jesus' name. Now you remember, uh, may remember during our mini-series that we did on, on this conflict in Israel uh, in uh, November, I talked about whether the current events in Israel, the wars and the rumors of wars and everything that's going on over there, might be the sign of Jesus' second coming. And we said, no, they're not. This is just one more evil act and a series of evil acts that will always continue uh, on the earth against God's chosen people. So we should never look at acts of evil as the triggering event of when Jesus is going to come again. Evil will never usher in Jesus' second coming. God determines the time of Jesus' coming, not evil men. It never happens on evil men's timetable. So verse 10 is the key here, right? Verse 10 is the key. The gospel must be preached first to all nations. And so the date of Jesus' return is set by God, not by people, not by Satan. And Jesus hasn't come yet because at least by God's standard, the gospel has not yet been preached to all nations. So Jesus said, don't be deceived. And I say it to you again, evil does not dictate when Jesus returns. 
many people have come. Many people will do evil things and will continue to do evil things. Jesus said, be on your guard. Be on your guard. Watch out. And after the rapture, it's going to get more intense. The, the, the tribulation that believers face will be unrivaled against anything that we've seen. And still, Jesus says, those are not the signs of the coming. They're just the beginnings of birth pains. So Jesus said, don't be deceived. Be on guard. And in the face of all this, the last thing Jesus says is stand firm. Betrayal will come. You'll be betrayed up to the, to the governors, to the, to the Antichrist government. And even within your own families, you are going to be betrayed. 12 and 13, brother will betray brother to death. And a father, his child, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Can you imagine this kind of persecution that would turn family member against family member uh, so that they would be killed? That, that's hard to imagine. This is the persecution that will exist in the time of the tribulation. Now, some of us have unbelievers in our families, right? And we know the hostility that can exist between believers and unbelievers in our own families, the animosity this causes, brother against brother, father against children, children against their parents. Family relationships will disintegrate. Uh, it will be believers under the Antichrist, or I'm sorry, unbelievers under the Antichrist power against Christian believers, and Christian believers are going to need to band together in order to stay alive. When this persecution comes, Jesus' warning is to stand firm. Believers must remain loyal to Jesus no matter what. Now, as Christians, you and I, we experience some mild forms of persecution, right? Uh, living in the West is not anywhere near as severe as it is overseas, but whenever we evangelize or step out and try and do things for God uh, or, or preach the word, whatever we're doing, we're going to experience some forms of persecution. But this is nothing compared to what the tribulation saints will suffer. Uh, the Antichrist is going to make all, all unbelievers or everyone take the mark of the beast, right? And, and believers that won't do that, that refuse to do that, they're going to be tortured and executed in horrible ways. Uh, and so it will be a time of unparalleled calamity on the face of the earth as even members of families turn each other over to the government of the Antichrist. And yet those who stand firm to the end will be saved. The word for stand firm is this Greek word hupamino, which means to endure, to endure persecution even unto death. And when you read these verses, you're probably thinking, these are hard, hard verses. And you may think to yourself, am I truly saved? Like, what would I do in that moment? How can I know if I'm saved if I have to endure to the end? And what would I do if my head were literally on the block and I had to renounce Jesus or they're going to literally cut my head off? What would I do in that situation? Would I stand firm? And, and if I falter, will I lose my salvation? Well, let me assure you that if you have trusted Jesus Christ with your salvation, you will never, ever lose that salvation. You'll never lose that salvation. Even if ter terrible persecution comes, you will not lose that salvation. If you have been saved by God's grace, you will rely on that same grace of God when it comes time to die. Now, none of us knows exactly what we would do under this severe persecution, even persecution unto death. And in our own power, maybe we would falter. But Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to say when the time comes, because the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. 
So if we ever find ourselves about to be martyred for our faith, just as Jesus has given us saving grace, he will give us the words to say when needed. And if necessary, he will even give us dying grace too. You know, so many faithful Christians have gone before us and they have died horrible deaths. How did they do it? Jesus gave them dying grace when they needed it the most. We don't need this dying grace today. That's why we don't know what we would say if we were under that kind of pressure. Jesus will give us that dying grace when we need it. Jesus promises to give it to us. Uh, I've read The Hiding Place, you know, Corey Ten Boom's book about The Hiding Place. And in this book, she's got a, a wonderful illustration about, uh, about this kind of dying grace. She was very nervous about her future, and she was questioning her father about what was going to happen now that this Holocaust had broken out. Uh, and and uh, Corey's father said to her, Corey, when do you need the train ticket? And Corey says, well, when I'm about to get on the train. And her father said, yes, that's right. You don't need the train ticket before you get on the train. You need that train ticket when the conductor asks you for it. So don't worry. Uh, your father knows that we need these things. We need this grace. So don't run out ahead of him, Corey. When you need this dying grace, if you're asked to, to lay down your life, God will give you this dying grace when you need it. So saving grace, sanctifying grace, even dying grace, God gives all of this to us. Our God is a God of grace from beginning to end. He saves us by grace, we live by his grace, and we can die with his grace. So we don't have to worry. Remember, our salvation does not depend on us. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God, who holds us with a power that can never be broken. He can, nothing is strong enough in the universe to separate us from God. That's Romans 8, 38 and 39. If our salvation depended on us, if keeping it depended on us, no one could be saved. It's God who holds us together. And so what do we do while we wait for Jesus' return? In Jesus' power, don't be deceived, be on your guard, stand firm. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this amazing passage uh, that you have revealed so much of, of what will happen to us uh, or to, uh, to, to uh, believers and to tribulation saints in the future. Uh, Lord, we are grateful that uh, even though uh, these are difficult verses, there are, are very clear principles that we can take with us uh, from this passage, Lord, uh, that we are to, to be on our guard, to not be deceived, and to stand firm, Lord. I pray that our hearts would be encouraged today, that uh, we live in a world that is hostile to us as Christians, and Lord, you have given us the tools, you've given us the Holy Spirit, so that we may not be deceived, that we may be on our guard, and that we may stand firm. I pray that we will rely on the Holy Spirit more and more in these days of tribulation for us, and Lord, that we will stand firm to the end. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.